You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Lord in heaven. Sometimes we talk about earth-shaking events, and Lord, when we think about this last week, when we think about the past months with earthquakes and New Zealand and floods in New Jersey and earthquakes in Japan and tsunamis all over the place. Lord, we don't want to hide our eyes from the needs in this world. But Lord, we can't look upon them without being firmly anchored in your word. And so we ask for that anchor right now, Lord. Again, not so that we can hide from the needs and the urgency of a world around us. But, Lord, so actually that we'd be better equipped to meet those needs. So speak to us now, Lord. Come, speak to your people. Serve your people now, Lord, by ministering to them with your word. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we begin at Acts chapter 5, verse 12, where... There had just been a, a dramatic, maybe I should say traumatic occurrence in the life of the church where a couple named Ananias and Sapphira had a, a remarkable instance of, of reaction to the exposure of their sin. We, we talked about it last week. I won't go into it. Get, get, get the tape or the message. It's all online or you could get it from on a CD or whatever. But it, it was a, a pretty dramatic instance of God purifying His church. And, and in response to that, Luke really wants us to know that that event didn't affect what God was doing at the church at all. As a matter of fact, it helped further it. Look at it here, starting at verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now, at the end of Acts chapter 4, verse 30, we read that these early Christians prayed that God would continue to do signs and wonders through, as they prayed, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And this shows that that prayer was answered and that these remarkable signs and wonders continued. Now, we're not told what the signs and wonders are or were. Presumably, they were like what we read in other places in the book of Acts and in the Gospels. Healings, deliverances from demonic powers, unusual blessings... But there was just the sense that God was at move in a powerful way, demonstrating it through miraculous things. And if you want to see another miracle, look at it there at verse 12 as well. It says that they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. You see, often I would say that the fact that God's people are together in one accord is a greater display of the power of the Holy Spirit than any particular sign or wonder. I mean, isn't that remarkable? Isn't that the greatest miracle of all sometimes? That God's people get together. Now, I think it's wonderful when there's a unity, when there's a grace, when there's a love among God's people. It's interesting. Sometimes we can be so interested in the pursuit of the miraculous that we forget unity. 
that we forget living together with one accord. I think this is a beautiful, beautiful instance here in the book of Acts that shows that one doesn't have to be pursued at the expense of one or the other. Beautiful, powerful instances of the miraculous. And they were with one accord together. You know, our selfish hearts, our stubborn minds can be harder to move than any mountain that could be shaken by the miraculous. Yet look at this, and this is sort of an after effect. If you want to say an aftershock, if I could use that term on this day, an aftershock of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira, look at what's happening there in verses 13 and 14. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. You see, there was such a reputation for purity, for integrity, that people knew it was a serious thing to be a follower of Jesus. You you know, you have to admit, an Ananias and Sapphira incident where people who were playing games with God, where people who wanted to have just the image of a superficial spirituality without the reality within, and such people like that were dealt with very harshly when their sin was exposed. You have to admit that that would cut down on the level of casual commitment, wouldn't it? The Christians who were just in it because it was a social thing, it was a good thing for business or community contacts, or their hearts really weren't into it, it would cut down on that. And that exactly seems to be what's happening here. The church had such a reputation for that integrity, for that purity, that it really made a difference. And as a result of all that, it says, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Now, I find it interesting. As the bar seems to be set higher for what the Christian life should be, more people were continuing to be added to the church. I think sometimes we get it all mixed up as Christians, don't we? We think that the way to attract more people to Jesus, the way to attract more people to be followers of Jesus, is to keep setting the bar lower and lower and lower. Well, that's not true at all, is it? No, 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 let let there be a biblical sense of purity, a biblical sense of integrity, a biblical sense of of honesty. Not in a legalistic sense, but just look, this is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. You want to be a follower of Jesus? Please understand this. It's not just adding Jesus to the life you already have. It's surrendering your life to Jesus and letting him transform it. You, You want to be a follower of Jesus? Then understand this, that it's not just you use Jesus to fulfill your hopes and aspirations. You come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, you inform my hopes and aspirations. I want them to be what you want them to be. Now, when we set the bar at that biblical place, we see that far from it making less followers of Jesus, I think it increases. Because people want to have something to live for. People want to have this sense of meaning and purpose in their life and have it that God-given meaning from Jesus. It changes everything. You see it there. It's very powerfully said. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord. The church kept on growing. Even though people knew that it was a serious thing to be a Christian, the Spirit of God kept moving in power. And I love what it says there. It says they were increasing, increasingly added to the Lord. Not primarily to a church as an institution. 
Not to a person. They weren't added to the disciples or the apostles. They weren't added to a movement. They were added to God himself. And they were added in multitudes. And make no mistake about it. The mention of multitudes of both men and women. That's Luke's way of reminding us that the cleansing of the church connected with Ananias and Sapphira. It did no lasting damage. Matter of fact, the pure church grew more and more. And by the way, when I say the pure church, not for a moment do I imply that they were perfectly pure. No, no, no. That's not going to happen among God's people until we're in glory. But there was just an atmosphere of purity, of honesty, of integrity among the people of God. Look at how this continues into verse 15. It says, So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And we read this and we go, wow. Well, first of all, it's a remarkable display of power, isn't it? God's power is so present that people are healed in dramatic ways, that, that people are set free from some kind of demonic uh, oppression or, or dominion in their life. And so powerful that it's drawing people from outside of Jerusalem. It says that they brought the sick out into the streets. People were so convinced of the reality and the power of what Christians believed that they thought they could be healed. Did you notice that? By the mere touch of Peter's shadow. We we'll have to look at something very carefully there. If you look at it carefully in verse uh, uh, 15... It says that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Our text does not specifically say that people were healed by Peter's shadow. Look at it again in verse 15. It does not say that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them and they were healed. It doesn't say that. It it sort of implies it in verse 16, but it doesn't specifically say it. It merely tells us that people thought that the shadow of Peter passing upon them would bring the healing power of God and that people took action based on that belief. We don't know for certain if people were actually healed when that shadow of Peter passed over them. But let's assume that they were. Let's assume that people were brought out in the streets and that as the shadow of Peter passed over them, they were touched by the power of God and they were healed. He said, how does that even work? Aren't we talking about magic? Aren't we talking about hocus pocus and weird superstition? No, I don't think so at all. You see, what what we have here is something that we see in a few other places in the Bible. It's where something like a shadow, something like some other material thing, if you could speak of a shadow being a material thing, but I think you know what I mean. That it's in this sense that it becomes a point of contact where people release faith in Jesus as their healer. Listen, strange things can trigger people's faith. I'll say that again. Strange things can trigger people's faith. It might sound crazy that someone could be healed as a shadow passes over them. But but we're told what? In the Gospels, that the touch of Jesus' clothing healed a woman. Do you remember that instance? 
But here's a woman that has a hemorrhage of blood and she's had it for years and years. And as she lives under this dreadful affliction that, that, that segregated her from all a community meeting and fellowship and all of that. And there she is in a moment of faith. She reaches out and touches the garment of Jesus and she's healed, right? I, I love that instance because it, to me, it's as soon as that happens, Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And there were people jostling around him all the time. There were probably four people touching him just at that moment with shoulders and elbows and all the rest of it. But he knew that at that moment somebody had reached out and laid hold of his garment in faith. And that made all the difference and the person was healed. You say, well, that's crazy. There wasn't anything magical about the garments of Jesus in that sense. Believe me, do you think that something happened magically to the Roman soldiers who held the garments of Jesus in their hands and gambled for them at the foot of the cross? No. But again, there was nothing magical about the garment itself. But what that lady said, she said, I believe Jesus wants to heal me. If I touch his garment, it'll happen. And I think probably in a very similar way, these people on the streets of Jerusalem, they're saying, I believe that God will heal me. When Peter's shadow passes over me, I'll receive it. And it's a strange thing that triggered their faith. I'll admit it. But it triggered it nonetheless. I think in a very same way, that's what happened with Peter's shadow. It reminds me of something else that I think we need to understand in the Christian life. We need to understand that all spiritual phenomenon can't necessarily be explained. Do you understand this? I, I mean, sometimes people will come to me and say, you know, wow, the weirdest spiritual experience happened and they'll lay it all out, you know, this and this and this. And they'll say, well, what do you make of it? A lot of times I'll just say, I don't know, it sounds weird to me. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes people don't like that. They say, well, no, wait, 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 shouldn't this change our understanding of the Bible because of what this and this and this happened? And it was really weird. And I said, no, no, no. Listen, I, I don't know about your experience. I can't deny it. I mean, it was your experience. So I'm not here to say anything against it. I'm just going to say, I'm not going to change the scriptures to accommodate the experience. I'm much more comfortable saying, listen, I know what the Bible says. As for your experience... Weird things happen. I hope it was a blessing in your life. I mean, honestly, I don't mean that in any weird way. I'm just saying I, I hope it was a blessing in your life. But strange things happen with spiritual phenomena that, that personally I feel under no great obligation to explain. How can I figure all that stuff out? Uh, but the Bible, that we can understand, that we can do. And so we let that be the basis for shaping our mind and for shaping our thought and understand that there's just going to be some spiritual phenomenon that happens from time to time that we can't put an easy label on, that we can't figure out. But I tell you what is glorious about it, and it says it right there in verse 16. It says that the multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. However God chooses to bring the healing, there's no doubt that there was a remarkable work of healing present. And we shouldn't miss the connection between the purity that was preserved in the first part of Acts chapter 5, right? The purity that was preserved with the Ananias and Sapphira incident and the power here displayed. God was blessing a pure church with spiritual power. And I'll say it again, just so nobody misunderstands. I'm not trying to imply that these early Christians were perfectly pure. No, 
We're not talking about something like that. We're just saying that there was certainly a general atmosphere of purity and commitment and honesty and integrity before God. Now, when we see this, we say, wow, isn't it amazing? Wouldn't it be spectacular to have such things happen among us? And the first thing I say is, yes, it, it would be spectacular. And I'll say it again, it is spectacular. Friends, don't miss the wonderful things that God does just in our midst. The people that get healed, the people that get delivered, the people whose lives are touched in miraculous ways, the, the, the beautiful and sometimes strange things that God does. He's not done doing those things by any means. And we see him here among us. But, you know, many people are excited about signs and wonders and miraculous things. And I say that in general, that is a good thing. The Bible warns us about people who have a form of godliness while denying the power of God. Yet let's be honest. Sometimes it seems that some of the people who are most interested in signs and wonders and the miraculous, some of those people just seem kind of crazy. Well, I've noticed that, haven't you? Haven't you ever flipped on the television, seen Christian television sometimes? Haven't you ever interacted with people who seem to have a, a great interest in the miraculous and the Christian and, and there just seems to be something strange or off kilter? Now, let me just say this. I don't mind a little bit of craziness. I've come to it in my life where I'm just okay with it. And me, I'm a pretty stable, you know, just moderate person. But listen, I don't mind it. I don't mind the atmosphere of it. A, a little bit of craziness can be a good thing. And I love people who trust God in ways that seem like it might be crazy. But whenever I think about this whole thing about the miraculous and the expectation of it, I come back to a few things that I think about. This is one thing I think about. When people are interested in the miraculous, I want to know, do they have a concern for truth? Now, when I say truth, I'm really not primarily thinking of biblical truth. I take that for granted, right? If somebody isn't concerned with biblical truth, well, that's, that's just in a whole other category, right? I'll take it for granted they're interested in biblical truth. I want to know that they're interested in true truth. And what do I mean by that? I just mean that things aren't pretended. Uh, let me put it this way. Are miracles really happening or are they pretended? Now, I I'm all for it when miracles are really happening. I think that they should be shouted from the rooftops. Let's face it, sometimes there are well-meaning Christian people who hype up things that aren't really happening. They say people are healed and they're not really healed. They, they, they say this happened and it didn't really happen. And, and I think that people who are interested in miracles, interested in signs and wonders, they should also be very interested in the truth. And they should be the most, most ready to ask for evidence that a true miracle happened. I mean, listen, if a person is healed, it should check out with the doctors. I find it interesting. We talked about this, and I'll just mention it because I've mentioned it before. So some uh, weeks ago when we were preaching through Acts chapter 3, and we talked about this man who was dramatically healed at the beautiful gate. We, we talked about that, and on that very same morning, God touched a man, and he healed, and he was healed beautifully. And, and just last few weeks, I received a letter forwarded from this man, 
And he spoke about how he went to the doctors and it was absolutely verified. Doctors just spoke about how things in his back and you could see that it was different. That man was healed. And you just say, well, that's glorious. But you see, if it's real, it should be able to be checked out. We want to know what's the place of truth. Are miracles really happening or are they pretended? But secondly, I think it's important to look for the place of integrity. And this is what I mean about this. What do you do if the miracle doesn't come? I mean, you can think about it in these terms, right? Here's somebody suffering under a poor affliction. And I don't know what the affliction would be. You could just make up whatever you want it to be in your mind. And there they are suffering under poor affliction. And some, some people get together and they believe that the power of God is present to heal. And they just say with great confidence, you're healed in the name of Jesus. And then not long after that, the person dies. Now look, I think integrity means you've got to deal with that some way. Integrity means you got to say, well, um, I guess we were wrong on that one. Integrity means your theology has to have the idea of what do you do when somebody isn't healed? You can't just close your eyes and pretend it didn't happen. You got to be able to say, well, well listen, there's, you, you know, we believe God heals many times, but not all the time. Unless you believe, which some people do, and I think it's a very wrong belief. That the only reason, for example, why God may not heal is because of a lack of faith in the individual sufferer. Now, I think that is a completely inadequate and unbiblical understanding of it. And so that's the other thing I look at. But the third thing I think of in terms of, I think about the place of truth. I think about the place of integrity. But I also think that, you know, when, when God is moving and, moving and if there's a lot of weirdness that the weirdness is probably coming from the people and not from Jesus. Now, I fully agree. When Jesus is moving, people can be weird. But that's not Jesus being weird, right? But when Jesus is moving, sometimes people are weird about it. Again, I don't say that Jesus did it. I'm just saying that people sometimes react to what God is doing, and they react in weird ways. I could give countless examples of this. One that I think is, is sort of, you know, remarkable, and I'll, I'll just say, is some years ago, it kind of became vogue in some Christian circles that, that, that when people felt like the, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, that they would begin barking like dogs. I mean, actually making barking sounds. And that this was done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to speak with reasonable certainty when I say I don't think that Jesus has ever prompted somebody to bark like a dog. <laughs> Except maybe a dog itself that had lost its voice or something. I mean, I think I can say that with fair confidence. That that just isn't one of the fruit or the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But again, I, I just don't know this principle. I'm not saying that the Spirit of God isn't moving at all in that circle and that midst. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying, don't put that one over on Jesus. Realize that that's people sometimes reacting in an environment where the Spirit of God and the power of God may be, and people reacting in a strange way. By the way, some people say that this idea of people barking by the inspiration of God, supposedly, has a long history and the history of revivals. It's almost all, it, well, almost all, it's fraudulent. In the 
early 19th century, there were some remarkable revivals in the, uh, well, what was the western United States at that time, Kentucky, the famous Cane Ridge Revival. And it was reported that people were barking in the spirit at that. All of that comes down to one story of a poor old Presbyterian minister who was so struck by sin and so burdened for souls that he was leaning up against a tree and sobbing convulsively. And you know how sometimes when a, when a person is sobbing convulsively, they can make little grunts. And, and from that tender, tender, beautiful scene of a man's heart being stirred by the Holy Spirit, went around the wicked and exaggerated and false rumor that he was barking and, and as a dog would sort of tree a raccoon or, a, or some animal that it was chasing, that he was trying to, so to speak, tree the devil. And it was totally fraudulent. And let me tell you, that story is repeated in college classrooms all over the country because they love to repeat it because it mocks Christianity. And there's not, a, there's not any historical basis in it. And it's a very interesting thing when you look into that kind of thing. But again, people can be weird when Jesus is moving. But listen, one of the most important things I ever learned about this whole idea of the miraculous and praying for people and healing and all of this, as to the principle, very simple. People wonder, well, what if a person doesn't get healed? What if I'm on the prayer team and somebody comes forward and they want prayer for healing and they're not healed? What then? I remember a wise pastor once told me this. He said, hey, you're not responsible for healing them. You're responsible for loving them. And and listen, whether or not that person leaves that thing healed, listen, that's up to God and and, and ways and things that he works that we don't understand totally, not not to begin with. Listen, I will say this. That person needs to walk away there for sure, knowing that God loves them and that you love them. That's what you're responsible for. Man, when I heard that, that was so freeing. Suddenly, the responsibility to be a miracle worker was lifted off of my shoulders. Thank heavens for that. But loving people, I can do that. You can do that. And that's what God will use in a powerful way. But listen, there's no doubt that God was moving in this miraculous way back then and that He is so doing today. Now, That raises a response. Look at it here in verse 17. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is of the sect of the Sadducees, and they were all filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Now now listen, the meeting of Peter and John with the religious leaders back in Acts chapter 4, that ended well for the followers of Jesus. But that wasn't the end of the matter. And the religious establishment again pushed against them. And we see how Luke is structuring the book of Acts. He'll bring forth an example of the church just ministering forth in all of its glory, just as we saw with this beautiful display of the miraculous in the preceding verses. And then he'll show how the world pushes back. The church and the world pushing against each other, working one and on another. And this just reminds us that the church just doesn't live unto itself, right? But the church has to interact with the world as well. We just don't have our own holy, happy club together. But the church must interact with the world. And this interaction here in the book of Acts, here in chapter 5, it mainly has the effect of persecution. They're being pushed back with persecution against. Well, that's not that always doesn't define the church's interaction with the world. But it does right here in Acts chapter 5. And I have to say, 
That makes me remember our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. I don't know if you've been watching the news lately, but it seems to be getting worse and worse. In recent weeks, there's been a series of abuses against Christians across the Muslim world. There was a notable murder in Pakistan, attacks on churches in Ethiopia, the the attempted assassination of a Christian leader in Turkey, and repeated persecution and pogroms against the cops in Egypt. Now, human rights groups are reporting new developments in Iran's anti-Christian crackdown, which has swept up nearly 300 Christian believers since June of 2010. One Iranian cleric called these house churches the work of the enemy. And then he said this, quote, Today the global aggressors have accurately planned and invested resources for their purposes. This is why in our country there is a strong inclination towards Christianity. Now I read that and I rubbed my eyes. You have an Iranian cleric admitting that in his country there is a strong inclination towards Christianity. And he blames it on plotting and funding and coordination all from the West. All I could say is I wish he was true. I wish there was more plotting and coordination and funding from places in the West to bring the gospel to the Muslim world. But there's precious little. But God's doing a great work nonetheless. I find it amazing that this man recognizes this. So we need to remember our persecuted brethren all over the world and pray for them. But here, you see that the priests were filled with indignation and that they put them in the common prison. Seemingly, that's all of the apostles because that's what it says. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So what happens? Look at verse 19. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Isn't that amazing? There they are in prison. What do you do with them? No problem. God sends an angel. He opens up the doors and he lets them out. No problem for God. I'll just send an angel to do it. Locked doors are nothing for angels or for those that God would use. And possibly, maybe they only stood that this was an angel in retrospect. Sometimes angels come in human appearance. I don't know if he came bright, shining, you know, wings on his back, all the rest of think about with angels. I don't know, but it just seemed like a person. In retrospect, they realized it was an angel. But what did the angel tell them to do? Not only did he let them out of the jail, but it also says, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You see, their rescue from prison was wonderful, but it was for a purpose. It was so that they could continue their work. God didn't primarily set them free for their own comfort, for their own safety. He set them free for a reason. And after that, they were not always delivered when they were in jail. See, I want you to think about that. God set them free right here, right? Go out and continue on your work. But nobody should regard that that means that they would always be set free from prison. You see, the later history of these apostles and others associated with them in the early church shows that sometimes God delivers by a miracle, as he did right here in these verses, and sometimes he does not. Fairly reliable church history and traditions tells us that miraculous angels did not always deliver them. Matthew, who wrote the gospel, he was beheaded with a sword. Mark died in Alexandria after being dragged through the streets of the city. 
Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Galilee, or excuse me, in Greece. John died a natural death, but they unsuccessfully tried to boil him in oil. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a height and then beaten with clubs. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew was whipped and then beaten until death. Andrew was crucified and he preached at the top of his voice to his persecutors from the cross until he died. Thomas was run through with a spear. Jude was killed with the arrow of an executioner. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded, as was Barnabas. And Paul was beheaded in Rome. You see, this reminds us. Friends, listen, we trust God for miraculous things and we wish to see them more and more. But we also know that God has a purpose when he does not deliver with a miraculous hand. Well, what are you going to say? Honestly, is anybody going to look me in the eye and say, wow, God was at work when the angel freed him from prison. But when all these guys were martyred, God must have been sleeping. Nobody can say that. God was at work mightily in both instances, just in different ways. And we see that they were not delivered always. And when they were delivered, it was for a purpose. When they weren't delivered, it was for a purpose. We also see that we, just like the apostles, we are set free for a purpose. It was not just merely for their own comfort, their own safety that they were set free, but for a purpose. By the way, I think it's also remarkable there in those verses where it says that the angel freed them, verses 19 and 20. We're also told that the angel went out and told them to preach. Don't you sometimes think that that angel could have done a lot better job preaching himself? But the job of preaching the gospel, it's not given to angels largely, is it? It's given to us. And so the angel said, you go out and do that work. And they did. This is great. Verse 21. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel, sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So they go, they check on them in the morning, they're gone. And what is that sort of funny, isn't it? The religious establishment was all gathered together to solemnly deal with these troublemakers who were teaching about Jesus. And so they intimidated them with a night's prison stay or maybe multiple nights. We don't really know. And then they were going to bring them to a council in the morning time to put them in their proper place. And yet when they went to go deliver them from the jail into the council, they looked and they saw the prison door as it should be. They saw the guards as they should be. It's just that there were no prisoners inside. Why? Because they had gone out to the temple early in the morning and taught. The angel told them, go out and did it, and they did it. They did it early in the morning. They did it in the most public place that they could, the temple. Don't you think they should have been a little bit more on the down low with this? But they weren't. God set us free to present the word. We're going to go at the most public place. As soon as we can, we're going to proclaim the word of God to the people. They were supposed to continue it, and they did it. So, you can just imagine back at that council meeting. Hey, who are we going to put on trial here? We had it all ready to go. 
Well, they have a solution. Look at verse 24. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. You know, I love what it says there in verse 24. It says that they wondered what the outcome would be. What are we going to do with these guys? First of all, we put them in prison for, uh, for uh, preaching the name of Jesus. And, and somehow they're out. They knew it was the power of God somehow at work. Secondly, they said, they keep doing it. We can't stop it. Don't you think it's funny that they had no trouble finding them? They've escaped from prison. Where are they? Somebody raises their hand. and they, I know where they're going to be. Let's look at the temple. They're probably teaching people in the temple again. Listen, that's not a brilliant prison escape, is it? To go to the most public place possible and start raising your voice, teaching to the multitudes. But you see, for them, it wasn't about a prison escape. You see, following Luke's story to this, we understand why they wondered what the outcome would be, but we don't wonder what it'll be at all, right? And so what? The captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. Those apostles were soon arrested again. They weren't hard to find. Maybe it was tempting for them to think that because they were miraculous release, that God wanted to keep them from being arrested again, but it didn't work out that way. Listen, when they went back into custody, they knew this. If God wants us to be released from you guys, he can do it like that. There's no shortage of angels in heaven that God can send to spring us from jail. If he wants us free, he can do it. And they brought them without violence. I think this is another great credit to the apostles. You know, they had a great deal of public favor. They could have started uh, uh, agitating the mob, right? Yelling out to all the people on the Temple Mount, Are you going to let them arrest us like that? You know what God's doing. But they made no attempt to do that, right? All right, we'll go with you. But here we see the very sad words at the end of verse 26, that the religious officials feared the people lest they should be stoned. Listen, the hearts of the religious leaders were once again exposed. They feared the people, but they didn't fear God who clearly showed that he was at work among the disciples. Listen, that's where we're going to end it here for this morning. I think we just got to think about this text. And I just want to ask you, what place does the miraculous power of God have in your life? God is a God of wonderful power. And I just want you to ask God, God, how do you want that power to be shown in my life? It may be done in a usual way or in an unusual way. But you should just be open to the amazing power of God. Now look, I'll tell you, I can't give you a handbook on how the power of God's to operate in your specific situation. Because we saw right here, right? Sometimes the power of God is there to heal and to deliver from jail. And sometimes the power of God isn't. The power of God is present, but not to deliver, but to strengthen in the midst of the trial. Not to deliver the person from martyrdom, but to give them strength to endure it in a way that glorifies God. I do know this, though. God wants his power at work in your life. He wants it at work in my life. And we should just be open to this and say, God, how do you want to touch my life with your power? You pray that, God will answer that prayer. So let's pray that together right now.